All right, hello everyone. Welcome to the WGA's first panel in our Controversy at Noon series. Hopefully the first of many. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, Valentin Goodard won't be able to participate in this panel this afternoon, uh, but we're really looking forward to hearing what the rest of our panelists have to say on the topic of AI. I'm Ashley Mann, the Program and Operations Coordinator. All right, that's it for me. I'm gonna pass it off to Dustin now. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining the controversy at noon, the effects of AI on writers and the literary world. I'll start off with a land acknowledgement. The Writers Guild of Alberta acknowledges that the land on which we live, work, and tell stories is located on treaty territory, and we respect the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples in Canada whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. My name is Dustin Archibald. I am a former president of the Writers Guild of Alberta uh, for the board of directors. I'm a writer and I'm also an editor of books on technology such as artificial intelligence and quantum computing. Uh, just as a reminder that Westward, the WGA's writing publication We'll be featuring articles and discussions on AI in its next upcoming issue. So keep an eye out for that. And if you're not signed up for the Westward, uh, I'd really recommend that you sign up for it and, and take a look at that issue. So I'd like to introduce our panelists today. Uh, coming first, we have Brenda McDermott and we have Catherine Abbas. So, to experts in artificial intelligence. And um, maybe if we can have Brenda, if you can just introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your experience with AI. Hi there. So my name is Brenda McDermott. Um, I don't know if I would say I'm a writer unless we want to go into some academic writing stuff. Um, but where I come to this is from a project that we're doing at the University of Calgary, looking at the ethics of um, academic integrity meeting artificial intelligence. Uh, and where I come to this kind of topic is thinking about, you know, how is this uh, a tool? How can we think about this from a teaching and learning perspective? And in particular, I'm very interested on how is this perhaps something that can help us with equity in our educational system and the ways in which that sometimes we have created barriers around language and how might tools like AI actually help people express themselves? All right, great. And Catherine? Uh, yeah, I um, am a writer, an Edmonton-based writer. Um, I also work for uh, Reimagine AI, which is a creative studio um, that works with different kinds of um, AI uh, to to create, you know, art-based projects. Um, but we're also working within like healthcare uh, and other kinds of, um, I guess, landscapes, uh, bringing AI uh, to people. And I. <laughs> script the personalities of the bots essentially is what I do. So um, kind of trying to bring that quote unquote human touch to uh, the different virtual beings that we create for the projects that we do. Um, and I've been with this uh, studio for about a year um, as a creative writer for for AI. So um, yeah, just, you know, some contradictions within, I think even what I do uh, within the realm of writing and AI. Um, but yeah, I'm still pretty, pretty new to it. Um, and uh, yeah. All right, great. So I'd like to just 
just dive right into it. And the first question that always comes up is what is a AI? What is artificial intelligence? Um, who would like to take that one first? Because I know that is a broad subject. Um, Brenda, how about we just start with you? Okay, so I think I, I channel uh, other people here when I say we call it artificial intelligence, but what we're really talking about are large language models that have been trained on a whole bunch of digital texts to create these models. And often they're um, traditionally been trained on either things on the internet, the Gutenberg project and such. So it's actually not intelligent yet. It's really just the product of machine-based learning and some really fascinating math that I don't fully understand that takes the relationships between words and tries to actually like create vectors of them or create uh, ideas of connections and relationships from them. Um, while we, it's very exciting and it seems very new, but we've had principles of uh, large language models, natural language processing, and you're, you've had it in your cell phone. So when you've had that word prediction, word suggestion tool, you've been kind of been using baby AI for probably a bit longer than you realize. Uh, Catherine, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think like even the example of, uh, you know, back in earlier versions of Microsoft Word, having your little paperclip buddy um, offering suggestions and, and such. Um, I think that the way I try to conceptualize um, at least like the AI kind of that I work with, um, each virtual being kind of has, you know, two sections of the brain is how I like to picture it. And one is um, kind of plugged into to a network of information um, and allows the AI to answer, you know, basic um, fact-based questions. And then the other half of it is that personality that, um, you know, I'm going to use air quotes every time I, I, I say that because we are talking about, you know, something that is artificially, artificially created. Um, and, you know, like a lot of of what I do to create a personality for a bot, um, you know, has has to do with how we get to know the personality of a person in real life. So it's a lot of questions and answers, um, scripting, you know, hundreds of questions. Uh, the more questions, the more nuanced a personality you can create for this virtual being, and then creating answers that that correspond and trying trying to create consistency, um, especially when you you know. Uh, are interacting with the bot and, and maybe you're asking of it something that is outside of those two sides of the brain that that we work with or that we program. So um, I'm really interested in kind of like that gray space, uh, the in-betweens, I guess, um, in terms of, you know, working with something that is artificially created um, and then, and, you know, whatever we infuse as humans uh, in, in our interactions with this, um, with this kind of, yeah, technology really. So that's really, really interesting. We brought up the idea of large language models. What other, um, what other types of artificial intelligence are affecting writers today? Um, Brenda, if you could just go ahead and jump in there. I think one of the, the challenges that um, I think many groups are having with uh, these large language models is, is the way that it in um, uh, or any of the, I think of them as generative AI, so AI that creates something new, is in some respect um, the way in which unless you use a constitutional AI, and a constitutional AI is something that like it's got the model and you're not training it as you use it. So they're, they're very particular ones and they're very hard to get into Canada, Canada access. So something like Claude, like Claude Monet, 
is a constitutional AI, but the ones that are most easy and most of us are playing with, it's learning from us as we go along. And so if you have a distinctive style, you have an idea, once you've started interacting with the tool, you don't know where that idea is gone and who else it may be shared with. So in terms of kind of who owns what, uh, or even just your own privacy, I think it's always a very complicated idea once we start playing with the tool. That's a good point. You know, the the idea of privacy and who owns what in terms of a, an artificial intelligence algorithm. Um, Catherine, do you have any um, any ideas about different types of AI that writers are going to be running into now as we now as we run forward? Um, yeah, I I think back to you know, my time in like high school English classrooms where I was teaching um, different types of, of creative writing, personal writing. Um, and I was, I think maybe, you know, in some sense, lucky to have kind of exited that scene prior to the explosion of something like ChatGPT, um, where you see a lot of issues with, with plagiarism um, and, you know, appropriation of ideas through, um, through chat GPT on things like essays and tests and stuff like that. Um, and I think that a lot of it, you know, has to do from, again, like a personal standpoint, like what are we missing from the generative uh, AI? And it's a lot of it is that human touch, um, feeling emotion that comes with experience, like lived experience of being human. And so um, in terms of writing, you know, like in my in my teaching with with the high school students that I worked with, a lot of it was like uh, building confidence in the writer themselves in their own ideas, so that the temptation to go elsewhere for, um, if, you know, for for other people's ideas is is less, I guess, prominent. Um, I don't know that that you know is is necessarily the answer for everybody, and of course, we're still going to be using. Um, AI and generative AI to facilitate different, you know, kinds of things, tasks in our lives. Um, but, but yeah, in terms of writing, I think a lot of it does kind of come back to, at least for me and how I conceptualize it, like how do we continue to place like the human and what makes the human human um, at the center and then use, you know, AI again as, as a tool um, more than, more than, you know, a solution to, to problems that we might have with our, with our own writing or our, our own confidence and our own uh, abilities to express ourselves. So we brought up the idea of generative AI um, quite a bit here. And chat GPT is one of these generative AI type systems. Can we maybe just delve into a bit more about what generative AI is and really, not really how it works, because that's a lot of work, but just a high level view about how it works and, and really the effects it has on when you're trying to compose some sort of text. Uh, Brenda, can you just start off with that? I'll do my best here. Um, I think when I think of generative AI, I often think about it, the idea that it's creating something. So um, generative AI can include things like written text. It can also include tools like Midjourney, which will create images. And so the idea is that you start off with a, a prompt or a parameter or an interaction, and then it's generating something for you, whether that be text or an image. Um, key to all of this is it's usually not a one and done. It's usually an iterative process. So often you're doing multiple prompts and refining it. So you're getting one piece from it and you're going, hmm, 
I liked what you did here, but not so much there. Can you redo this with this? Or can you simplify the language? So there's often a series of interactions trying to get towards a product that's meeting more the expectation. Okay. Is Can you fill in a bit more of that, that idea, Catherine, about meeting the expectation that you have when you do a prompt, when you, when you submit a prompt to a generative um, type system? Really, what are you trying to get out of it when you do this? Um, yeah, you know, you're trying to get something tailored to your your purpose or your motivation. Um, and I think Midjourney is a good example. And I've worked with Midjourney in my own, um, or yeah, I've interacted with Midjourney in my own work. In it, and it's really interesting to see what, um, you know, it's like any kind of conversation, what kind of stands out to to the other to the listener um, and how the AI will interpret uh, a prompt that you give it. So um, even making certain adjustments. So if I say, you know, I want to generate an image of um, a basketball team uh, playing basketball on on the moon and, you know, one team's in red and one team's in blue, I can include all the details I want, but um, it's really out of my hands, at least the first few goes, uh, what Midjourney decides to, you know, focus on, uh, especially if you include different styles uh, that you'd like it to kind of, you know, create an image in, in the image of. Um, and I think with, with you know, ChatGPT and using, um, ChatGPT is like a generative kind of tool, you see the same thing. So, uh, you know, you can ask ChatGPT for a handful of writing prompts and they'll spit out something quite generic with, with you know, a generic ask like that. But then the more uh, nuanced, the more refined you, you, you make your request, um, the more nuanced and refined those results are going to be. Um, and I think that's kind of, you know, the, the learning or the intelligent part of, of AI. And so your work deals a lot with personality. Um, can you kind of just speak to that, how personality is generated when you're using generated generative AI? Um, yeah, so I, I I use generative AI a little bit less in like the 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 composition of the personality in, in the bots that I create. Um, often, again, I, I think I mentioned earlier, it's a lot of questions and answers. So, um, you know, you could start with a base bot that has 100 um, predetermined questions in there, all that have to do with personality. So what's your favorite color? What's your favorite season? Um, do you like shopping? Like all these, all these kinds of, you know, base baseline questions. Um, and then you'd script the answers and, and, you know, in the work that I do, I give um, multiple uh, answers for the same question so that you can create a bit of a sense of voice for a character. Um, you know, so same question asked maybe different ways um, will will generate a different, a slightly different answer each time. So, you know, maybe the the being is consistent in the fact that pepperoni pizza is their favorite, uh, but the way they communicate that with you in their answer is going to be a little bit different every time. And that's a lot to do with the large language model um, that's kind of backing it up or giving it, you know, um, the, the power. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, of course, the more nuanced you want to make that that bot, that virtual being, the more questions and answers you have to compose um, to just fill in those kinds of gaps. So, you know, you could have a thousand questions in there um, and still there will be gaps, of course, um, but you're trying to create or I'm trying to create consistency within that character um, and look for places where, yeah, perhaps, uh, you know, is there a way that the question about pizza that can be asked that will will 
you know, generate a response that's not pepperoni? Uh, and then what do we do with that? And and how do we kind of plug that hole? So it's it's a lot of really uh, like detailed um, work, I would say. Uh, but but it all has to do with language and and you know, y- especially when you're working kind of from a base spot, you can think about what kinds of personality traits you would want that virtual being to have. So you know, you could build a bot that's got a bit of sass or a bit of um, you know, like attitude. Uh, you can create a bot that's um a little bit more meek or mild, and all of that has to do with the 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 language that. Um, I would choose to to respond to questions. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much the process. <laughs> and so when you talk about a bot, uh, is that's like a program, right? Um, a bot, yeah, I'm using like bot and virtual being interchangeably, I guess. Um, like our, you know, any kind of, lots of the bots that we have will have kind of like visual um like an image of what of what they look like if they're a creature or, or a human type um character um but yeah each each bot is like its own entity its own um being its own personality if you will okay great so this is where we get to the the controversy at noon part um, so where does the controversy on ai and writing come from so what are the main concerns and i'm gonna ask brenda to start that discussion off here Well, I think one of the first concerns that comes out is recognizing that the the large language models, the things that are the basis of of most of these tools are the products of human beings. It was trained on like a sort of like think, imagine it like a Pac-Man went through a library. That's how I imagine the learning process. It just keeps eating this. And there are all sorts of flaws and stereotypes and biases in what it was fed. And so it is no better than than us human beings in terms of when it produces things out, it is going to produce out things that create that bias. So uh, an experiment I have to have students do is say, okay, pick a profession and ask chat GPT to write you a story about it and then just keep regenerating it. So if you ask it to do it for nurses, you actually get all female names for that nurse character. It's a little bit better with doctor, but again, it's that same kind of formulaic thing. It's going through and it's going, it's, it's picked up that bias. The other thing I think in particular for interest for writers is recognizing, you know, English is not a monolith, right? We have world Englishes, we have different ways of expressing it. And ChatGPT didn't learn that, right? It learned the predominantly Western North America centered uh, way of speaking and being. Um, so when you try to ask it to engage in other world Englishes, it knows in principle, like if it, but it just, it becomes a very uncomfortable. And I think it's almost like a blackface kind of situation where you can tell it's still just applying these surface level characteristics of, let's say, an Afro-Caribbean um, dialect or English and it's just putting it on top. So same with Canadians, it often it's like everything ends in A, right? You're like, oh, this is this isn't actually meaningful. So the large language models haven't been tweaked, and they could be tweaked with multi-shot learning and the interactions of things like people like Catherine to learn how to do it. But it's not there yet. So when we use it, we have to recognize that you know it it is not perfect, and it's going to bring all that back with it. So one of the the concerns that I hear quite a lot is 
in terms of intellectual property and copyright. So if I wrote a story, I write a novel, and then this large language model comes along and consumes it and it's brought into the model and I'm not compensated for that, um, that's not ethical. Did you want to speak to that for, for a bit, Brenda? Sure. And I mean, this is where it's hard with the technology because we don't actually find out all the training materials it's used um, there. Um, so because it's going on the internet and it's just taking what it can as a little creepy crawly there, um, that, you know, it's using things that from its perspective are already sort of in the public sphere. So we've shared them out. Um, the other thing that a lot of um, people suggest is that they've used Project Gutenberg heavily as well. Um, so I see it from the bias perspective of we've not given it good food to to grow up on. We've given it very dated stuff. Um, but in this way, if it's available uh, elsewhere and it's put it in an aggregate, there isn't, I guess it's a sense of, you know, they're going to claim that they didn't actually train it on your story. That they did, it was something that was freely available from um, the public domain would be, I think, the corporation's argument there. Um, what I'm kind of interested is, you know, where does it happen if I create a model and I create my model and I only feed it um, Tom Clancy novels, hypothetically, and I now have a an AI bot that can create a new Cl Tom Clancy novel? Is who owns that? Right. So when we can start customizing our own models to represent or mirror the style of individual authors, that's where I think it's it gets questionable. Who owns that voice? Who owns that style? And that leads to an interesting question that I think, uh, Catherine, you can answer. Well, maybe explore, not answer. Um, because you deal with how personalities come through in different creative aspects. Can you speak to that, that kind of concern that people would have about who really does own this voice when it comes out of a, a generative AI system? Um, yeah, I think like this is, you know, kind of the question that I, I contend with in work and in writing. Um, and, and it's a tricky one and I don't have an answer, but I think it's obviously really important to discuss, like when we talk about style, um, especially for for you know creative writers and how many years um and and stories it takes to build uh, a voice that's unique to you and i think there's you know still a, a huge gap um that that exists between um you know what an ai is capable of creating in terms of style uh and the the actual you know original artist writer um who whose whose work is being you know threatened by this by this new technology um i think that you know in in spite of that we know how fast ai learns and grows and so the the gap can be closed i i think pretty quickly uh especially if we're doing something like brenda suggested you know feeding it the same uh kind of material in order to create something um very similar uh but um i think you know there's still always going to be that human element that is missing. And, and as much as, you know, I work to script it into a bot, uh, it's still, you know, the keyword there's I've scripted it. Um, so it's not a natural response. It's still missing the element of human experience. And, you know, I think a lot of our, 
our art writing especially speaks to the question of of what makes us human and an AI will never be able to answer that question at least at least from my perspective um you know even when I think about questions that um I'm scripting into personalities of bots a lot of them you know do have to do with feeling so uh do you feel happy today uh or you know can you tell me about a time you felt angry and those answers are still scripted and so no matter you know, you no matter what the answer is or how convincing the language of the answer I've scripted is, there's still that that experience piece that's missing. The AI has not actually experienced this thing. And so we'll never be able to speak as accurately as a human being will uh, to to what that experience is like or what that feeling uh, feels like in the body. So when we're, when we're talking about writing with AI, um... A lot of writers feel that there is a imminent threat to their livelihood, to their basic um, existence as writers. It, do we find that there's this threat is real or that it's been hyped up? What do you think, Brenda? I think whenever something new comes along, it 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 makes us anxious, comfortable, and I think that's a natural uh, emotion to acknowledge. Um, I think of it, and I can't remember the author's name, but if you Google uh, the writing synthesizer, he made a very good um, comparison of this tool maybe for writing what the synthesizer was for music. Um, so in terms of like, you know, prior to the synthesizer, you needed to know how to play the violin if you wanted to sound like a violin. Now, once you had the synthesizer, you could input the violin sounds without all those years of expertise and building, but it still required you as a human being to interact, create, develop, and go along. Um, so I think here often it's a nice point to look at some of the other arts as supportive and maybe giving us a guide through. So thinking about, you know, collage and digital art that where maybe people didn't have to actually, you don't have to be able to draw said thing to be able to now put it in and represent it in a piece of art. And it lowered those barriers for entry for people for communicating. Or I'm thinking of, you know, in some ways, you know, the beauty of mashup culture or DJing or all places, um, right? Once we could sample music, it meant that an individual didn't have to have an orchestra to put that sound into their piece. And how did that change music, particularly in large urban areas, right, where maybe that would have been a barrier. So I can understand being afraid, but I'm also thinking, who does this let us join into the community who maybe previously weren't able to join? Because the barrier for them was that, that first step. And now interacting with that technology. So I think of individuals um, of a wide variety of disabilities, but I mean, I think of people who just even functionally mo mobility where clicking a mouse would have been really hard and talking it out, you know, there are limitations to that software. So who, who gets to play now that we maybe lower that barrier of entry? But at the same time, I imagine if I was a violin player when the synthesizer came out, I would also be worried that maybe people aren't going to hire me and I've invested these years to develop that expertise, but we still have violin players that didn't disappear with the synthesizer because there were limits to how it sounded. So yes, it let people in, but it didn't completely replace that old voice. So that's a good point when we're dealing with the fear of artificial intelligence, basically the unknown. Uh, Catherine, you basically 
do your work. You know, you're basically living in this AI type world. Um, what's your perspective on, on this perceived threat of artificial intelligence? Um, you know, somewhat to writers, but just in general. Um, I think I'm lucky to work with a group of people where ethics is really important when it comes to how we interact with AI. So when I think about, you know, using Midjourney to generate maybe an, an inspiration uh, an inspo pick uh, for a project we're doing, and then our team hiring an artist to create something original that is completely ours or theirs, um, using that inspir inspiration that was generated through AI. So I think, you know, it's important to think about the limitations, kind of like Brenda said, will always be there. So, um, you know, as writers, how can we use AI as a tool? Um, and, 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 a tool to help us creatively and a, a tool to help us refine our style. Um, I don't, I don't think that like Brenda said, you know, we're going to stop writing because AI is doing it for us now. Um, there's always going to be new stories to share and, and ways to share them that AI will never be able to replicate. So um, I, I think, you know, the threat, it's the threat, if you want to call it that is, is there, but I don't think that it'll ever um, rise to such a point where it, it's going to replace artists or it's going to replace um, artistry in general. I think people are still going to be creating because that's what they love to do and that's what they need to do. Um, and, and I think, yeah, just trying to use again, AI as like a tool to help us, um, uh, you know, practice our craft, um, in a way that that's working, not not with AI necessarily, but um, I think it was Sean Michaels that Brenda, you were talking about the synthesizer, um, who who's a Canadian writer who just wrote a book about a, a poet who collaborates with an AI for for a new book. You know, so I think like not looking at it as a threat, um, but in looking at it as in terms of what opportunities can it offer us, um, we'll kind of eliminate maybe some of that fear or at least lessen uh the feeling of you know this is something it's it's writers versus ai um how can we work with it i think is you know the question that we should be asking um as well alongside so when we're dealing with ai and with writers um a lot of the writing tools that we have now are starting to integrate generative ai into the most of their applications. So with Microsoft, they have Copilot, which is coming out for all of their their suite, and that's integrated into Bing now with ChatGPT. We have Grammarly, ProWritingAid, these kind of things that writers are now used to using that are integrating generative AI into the product. So how are writers supposed to navigate the new writing ecosystem knowing that AI is so involved in it? Um, do we? Can you speak to that a bit, Brenda? I think we need to play. Uh, I think I think for one thing, when we we play with things, we have this idea of excitement and joy instead of being scared. So I think you know, as a, as a person, you know, coming into this this fear, and maybe you're like, it's it's showing up. I don't know what it does. Just just to enjoy and see, you know, test, test, test drive it. Don't, don't give it your best work, but test drive it. See, see where it may go um, to be able to help you along the way. Uh, I think the other thing is, you know, looking at, there are usually settings involved where how far do you want to go down the AI route? So you can kind of pull it back a little bit for yourself. 
Um, and I'd also say from a writer's perspective and from writing, not maybe in a technical communication kind of way, but as a creative writer, you're not necessarily their main audience. These are often being considered tools for business productivity. So like Copilot is supposed to help you write that very standard, well-structured, give me an invoice email. Um, so in many ways, these tools are being catered to the business world. So that should give a little bit more flexibility to writers. What it does do well is if there's a very well-structured story or style that has existed, it will follow the steps. So sometimes that can be, I would say, fun. So I think of many years ago when I was a kid, my dad, um, he liked to, to write. He was never, I think, as productive as, as your members here, but he used to have a, uh, a, it was like Mad Lips. It would, he had a whole list of adverbs, whatever, and it generated a story. I always remember the one that the villain said, and he tasted victory and it tasted like salad dressing. Okay. And that gave him a, he wrote a story. I think it was published at some point where the final like end of the story was what was victory? What did the pie, what would this pie taste like? This beautiful one that won the contest. It tasted like salad dressing. So in some ways, when we play with it, it's very humorous, but it helps think of ideas that maybe we would never have thought of. Cause I don't think anyone here thought of the phrase victory it tasted like salad dressing. So sometimes they're, that's the play that I'm trying to get across here. And so on that same, uh, same thread there, Catherine, has anything really surprised you that has been come out of your interactions with artificial intelligence? Um, I just, I love what Brenda said about play. And I think the surprises for me have come up when I am, you know, just playing, especially with like things like image generation, where maybe you have a really good idea of what you'd like a character to look like visually. Um, and, you, you know, I've entered a prompt into mid journey and it spits out, you know, something expected, but there's some sort of, you know, quirk or characteristic that I wasn't expecting that kind of shapes the character in a new way. Um, you know, I think of even just this four little four legged creature that I created that, um, you know, had a little birthday candle on its head. We weren't expecting an outcome like that, but then we were able to kind of write the candle into the character in a way that really expanded the character and changed a lot of its other, uh, you know, characteristics and its personality. So I think it's really fun, the opportunities that it offers us through, you know, what maybe people on another or in another vein of AI would consider mistakes or errors or malfunctions. Um, I think those are actually really great opportunities for us to, to explore a bit more and, and, and play a little bit more. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'll just stop there, I guess. So in terms of, uh, in terms of writing, I'm not sure if either you can answer this, but are we seeing more or less AI generated content in traditional publishing or in self-publishing, um, what what levels are we seeing those at, and are they being accepted more or, or less? Can you speak to that at all, to sort out, Brenda? I can't really speak to it in publishing. When we look at um, from like post-secondary, now granted, traditional like academic writing is is fairly formulaic, so it it works for the generative AI. Um, in some of the work where people have asked students how are they using it and those pieces is it's often that idea generation, breaking things down, sort of helping with that first part of the task. It hasn't been too often. It becomes that blur. Maybe maybe we're all becoming cyborgs. 
Um, but that blur of it's working together. So it becomes really hard to pull apart what was the human and what was the AI, because it's not like they just went in and put one prompt in and produced it. There was interaction. How do you account for that interaction in terms of authorship? So when speaking about the, the advantages of AI, when I was on Reddit, which is not exactly the best place to be for uh, if you want to learn about writing, but I was on there anyways. And it, one of the users, they posted that they didn't, they didn't write as well as they would like, um, but they didn't have enough time or money to spend working with an editor. Now I'm an editor, I do freelance editing as well, but I suggested, um, you know, take some of your content, put it into something like chat GPT, and then have it say, evaluate what I've written here, or maybe fix up the grammar, fix up the, the spelling, those kind of things. And I was severely downvoted for that because apparently we're not supposed to be encouraging AI, but I found that that was an advantage for someone who was um, still trying to work on their punctuation skills and their grammar skills. Um, what other advantages do does AI have for writers besides the creativity part? Um, maybe we can have you have a quick discussion about that, Catherine. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think like coming back to that idea of accessibility, I agree that there's a lot that AI can do to, to bridge gaps in that um, in that department. And then, you know, the, the gaps that still exist are have a lot to do with um, nuance and perspective and experience that human experience that um, that is kind of missing in terms of editing. Uh, um, you know, even cultural sensitivity, we know there's a lot of work that needs to be done with AI um, before it can be useful to us in those kinds of ways as writers. Um, and of course, I, I don't believe it'll ever replace uh, the work of an actual human in that department. Um, I think in terms of, you know, generating ideas, um, I think it has a lot to offer for, for writers in that sense. Um, I think of even, you know, meeting with with my my writing groups uh, and using ChatGPT to generate different kinds of prompts or beginnings or ends of stories or even characters um, to kind of have a starting point that you can, you know, layer on your own uh, your own narrative. Um, so I think there is lots of like generative potential there. Um, again, it's to me, it's about like, okay, and, and then at what point do you kind of do you do you say, okay, we, you know, I've, I've gotten my help from the AI. And now I'm gonna, I'm gonna use my own skills, my own knowledge in order to kind of make this fly or give it a uh, personality or voice. Um, yeah. And so Brenda, can you speak to some more of the advantages of AI, maybe in terms of accessibility? Uh, I know that that's a part of what your, your interest is. So in some ways, um, I think of, um, you know, how often are there small typographical errors um, in work that, you know, those words that are like the, they, the many they's and theirs and weathers, um, because natural language processing looks at the relationship between words, this is why it's able to something like Grammarly can say, I think you meant the wrong one. Um, as an individual with a learned ability around writing, it's very helpful for me because it helps me realize, yep, once again, I missed the L-Y. It was supposed to be an adjective. So I wrote particular, not particularly. 
and it can catch that for me in a way that um, if I had to do the editing myself, it would take hours and hours to do. Because it's, of course, always harder to edit your own writing for these small details because you're familiar with it. Our brains fill in those gaps. I also think about how it can be really helpful for um, people who are learning English in terms of, you know, looking at, okay, I, I kind of want to say this. I'm not quite sure how to say it. I can interact with the technology or I can give it my words and let it look at it. Um, and there have been these predecessors. So things like the Hemingway app has been around for a long time, giving feedback on writing in terms of conciseness. Um, but there are ways in which uh, I think now what it can do is it can start helping you with that phrase or instead of just, okay, I don't know what a good example of this looks like. Um, and so I think that's where one of the ways that it helps. The other thing that we sometimes forget is that Generative AI is actually quite good at summarizing existing documents. So it can kind of, and this is where I think of the bots, maybe not as creative as Catherine's, but I think about like our chat bots that are often still using the same system, but it just takes you to the website you needed to go rather than you navigating the web and trying to find it. So there are lots of ways, I think, from an accessibility lens, it can help make things more cognitively accessible. It can help with you know, substituting language, it's very good at, you know, synonyms. Sometimes it creates very unusual synonyms, but again, it's helping to think about what are different ways I can say this? What if I wanted to say this more strongly? What would that look like? What if I wanted to soften it? What would that look like? Um, and then just recognizing that there are lots of times where people, um, you know, we're doing writing perhaps, perhaps not as creatively, but, you know, if you've applied for jobs, writing those cover letters or are a slog, right? So instead of you writing brand new cover letters for every position, you can actually use ChatGPT to say, here's the position I'm applying for. Here are my, the things I wanna highlight, draft me a cover letter. And in five to 10 minutes of interaction, you can have a really good cover letter. So I also think about that in all the ways in which people interact with writing to request an extension, to talk to a bank, there are all these other layers um, in which this can become a tool to help people be able to present themselves in the world without being judged where previously, oh, I'm applying for a bank load and I made these errors, I might get declined. And that's solely because I didn't grow up speaking this language. That's a, that's a pretty fair point. The, the accessibility of generative um, AI is pretty unmatched for in, for in terms of writing and its capabilities. Um, what tools are available for writers who want to maybe explore AI, take a, take a look at what's going on, maybe play around with it a bit? Um, Catherine, what, what tools would you recommend that, that writers could use to just try things out? Um, yeah, to be honest, I haven't ventured too far outside of ChatGPT and I think of, you know, ChatGPT as a as a really good place to kind of get a foundation for the more formulaic types of writing. Um, kind of like Brenda said, you know, it's really good at at spitting out a cover letter or um, generating some kind of you know uh, the language surrounding like certain types of asks and memos and stuff like that. Um, I 
yeah, I, I, I don't have tons of familiarity outside of uh, that in terms of what kinds of generative AI uh, is available to writers and stuff. But I, I do agree, like tools like Grammarly and other kinds of, um, you know, more editorial kind of assistant uh, stuff like things that have more to do with um, revising than maybe like original creation, um, I think are still worth exploring um, for, for, yeah, for their usefulness in that department. Um, Brenda, do you have any any recommendations for writers who want to explore AI? We talked about ChatGPT pretty good. Is there anything else? There are some tools. The challenge being, uh, if you have a VPN or not, you can engage with Bard through through Google, um, which is their version of uh, um, the GPT tool. Um, there are. Um, Again, if you have a VPN, there are things like Claude, which are constitutional ones so that they're set up. They have a small cost to them, so it may not be a free product. Um, the other thing I always suggest too is taking a look at um, tools that may be based on ChatGPT, but they've been customized for certain things. So if you really want to know where information comes from, then you might like perplexity. Perplexity includes the um, the hyperlinks. It's kind of got like footnotes for it if you want to see where you're going. Um, there's sometimes um, other tools around things um, like I think of Ask Your PDF where you can put up a PDF and then it will help you sort information in and out uh, and create it. So I mean, in, and it claims that it doesn't use that to teach its model. So if you had a a document and you wanted to sort of I want to have a conversation with my character, let's say, you, in theory, it shouldn't be teaching or sharing that information you set out. And then you could have a conversation with it and say, okay, well, what would this be based on what I've given them? Um, so there are different ways of kind of playing around. I think we'll see more and more emerging um, quickly as time goes on. And likely what they'll be are these customizations. They'll use the same system as something else, but they'll customize it. They'll do some multi, they'll, they'll tweak it and use it in a particular context um, to help along the way. Um, but I think mainly the key thing is just to always be mindful of what the privacy policy is when you are sharing something um, up with it. Uh, and if you are sharing it, I just do it the same way. You know, imagine if all your... You are, don't pretend it's your back porch, pretend you're on your front porch. So whatever you're sharing with it, pretend the whole neighborhood can see it kind of idea. Okay, that's that's really a good warning. We do need to make sure that we're aware of what, what our data is being used as and be cognizant of that at all times. It's not always best to just assume that everything's gonna work out, right? My last question is, um, that goes back to the controversy part and is do you feel we should or even can stop AI and uh, I'll go with uh, Brenda first on that um, I don't think we should in particular because I think if we can there's a power at this point on how can we shape AI for for good and how can we address those balances and if we ignore it I think what happens is then we can create, you know, the traditional moral panic about a new technology and all of a sudden, you know, oh, don't use it, don't use it. Well, it it hasn't gone away. The calculator didn't go away, as I often tell people, right? The internet didn't go away. Uh, spell check and word didn't go away. 
Um, but what we can do is look at, you know, being advocates for our privacy, uh, as well as I think for the, where is it making decisions? And maybe this is where um, I would side with the, the, the more professional writers in this area. But I think it's an interesting say is like, do we want AI to make editorial decisions in terms of what gets published or not? They use it for HR resumes and they screen and scan things out. And there are problems with that, right? There are people who don't fit the norm get excluded, right? Um, so I think that becomes kind of the, the challenge there is to say, okay, is this our point where we can lobby and say, you know, we want the option to be opted out of a process that involves AI, those kind of pieces. So that's why I say embrace it, if only because when you embrace it, then you have a chance to perhaps do some changes. And Catherine, what do you have to, what's your idea about this on AI and whether or not we can, or even should try and uh, stop it? Yeah, I love what, what Brenda said. Um, I agree. I don't think that we we should necessarily try to stop it, um, but be more, you know, aware of how we'd like it to to be a part of our lives um, and what we want to use it for. And I think, you know, in terms of like, how do we com combat it? Or I think it's more about, you know, making sure that we're still consuming uh, art made by artists. So still going to the theater and still buying books uh, and still, you know, going to museums and, and art galleries and consuming art the way um, we always have. Sure. But I think we, we need to, you know, not eliminate AI as um as this danger as this threat um in the way that we think of it because I think that that's when um it can grow uh outside of you know what we what we want it to be um so I think yeah approaching it with more curiosity than fear I guess um is is one way to make sure that uh you know we can integrate it the way we want into our lives instead of have it uh dictate or or rewrite the rules of art for us Okay, that's that's great. So the last part of our discussion before we get to the questions, um, what what calls to action would you would you have regarding regarding AI and writing? Brenda, can you speak to that? I think that the main one that I would say is I think we want to challenge um, these tools if we can to to let us know what they're trained on. Uh, and often that's that's their proprietary, it's their secret sauce. So they they don't tell us that. Um, but without that information, it becomes really hard to to understand the biases in there, to understand the limitations of the model, the purpose of the model. Um, they all are moving to say, look, we're we're cleaning the data. They're talking about the fact that they're, you know, it won't give you bomb making instructions, right? Like they're putting parameters on it, but they're not being clear on how and why they're doing that. Um, and I think that could really shape what the tool is. So I guess that's for me is like, I really, I know you don't want to share all of your steps here, but we need a better sense of what was the foundation of uh, that large language model that now drives all of these pieces to give us a sense of the scope of what was trained on or what are the parameters that you're using um, now to, to sort through or determine this is not a legitimate question and piece. Because I think when we understand that, that gives us a lot better ideas of being informed users. And so would you say we can maybe pressure our governments into legislating that these type of companies will, will give us that information? 
I don't know if the solution will always be uh, government legislation in internet tools. I think of my communication scholar background and once we go on the internet, nationally, we don't have a huge bunch, but I think what we can really do is pick tools of individuals who have signed on to some of these larger agreements that talk about the parameters of AI, AI for good. There's a lot of work there um, in terms of those pieces. So I think, you know, looking at, I want a company that has an, you know, a policy on their development. So Microsoft has a particular policy that they've developed, for example, on AI, how they use AI, and then deciding, does that fit with with my my sense of being. Um, Google, all of them have these documents and they're working more collectively as a large country. Um, so I'm thinking that's where it is. And so similarly, we can vote with our, our product feet as well, right? In terms of, I'm not gonna purchase that product or as a group. Um, I always think about you know institutions that buy big licenses for these things. This is where we can say, hey, we're not buying your license unless you give us this information. And Catherine, what do you have to say for, for takeaways about this topic? Um, yeah, I don't have much more to add on to what Brenda said. I think like uh, thinking of transparency in which uh, corporations or products are transparent with the information and, and where they're getting it uh, can help us make more more informed choices about how we'd like to integrate AI into our lives and into our art. Um, and And again, like what to what degree we want to, we want to integrate it. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I guess if there's a bottom line for me, um, it's again, not to think of AI as necessarily a threat, um, but a tool and how, uh, we'd like to make it or have it enhance our writing instead of replace, uh, our creativity. Okay, great. So that wraps up the, the discussion portion. Now we're going to go to some, some questions. Uh, the first one here is from Melissa. It says, hi, you said earlier that the corporation will just claim that if they access our writing on digital platforms, they will claim it as public sphere. But for example, on my blog, like many others, I use the copyright symbol and language to warn people from just taking it. I do allow some in Creative Commons use too, by the way. Why can't AI just look for that language and avoid consuming it. So either one, uh, Brenda or Catherine. I'll start because I think it was the comment I made and I think we need to make a distinction between it producing something for a person in that moment versus the large language model. Um, in the large language model, it's now taking the relationships between different words. And so it'd be very hard in a large language model to actually ever determine that the, your piece of writing was one of the millions or trillions of sentences that it was trained on. Um, so that in that context, it's like, you'll never be able to track it down. It shouldn't necessarily be pulling a particular phrase from your work without using some sort of quotation mark system. Um, and then I guess they would I think I'm channeling evil here, but I would say that it's like, it would say, well, how are, how are, how do you know that these words are from your blog? How do we know it's not just like infinite number of monkeys on a typewriter? But I think what you highlight here is this is why I wish we could teach or have a sense of how is it going through and getting its answers uh, in terms of like, what was it trained on? Because I think that would be helpful. Also, it would 
probably give people a right to saying, well, I, you clearly indicated that you, you use this in the training. I help train this. I get compensated in that way or that I want it to be trained, but if we're going to use internet sources, the internet sources need to be X, Y, and Z. But the problem is once you're in the large language model, it's not like it's going to reproduce your sentences necessarily. It's that you are some of the data points on the relationship between language, language that it's made. So it's a little bit complicated that way. So if they train the model on yours, we won't really be able to tell but if it's actually producing things that have similar phrasing to yours, that's where maybe it could be problematic. But then again, they might just say, oh, is it infinite? Where this may change over time is there's increasingly ways for photographs and stuff to looking at putting indications of ownership in the photograph itself. Google has been doing some work on this so that even if it was repurposed or recut, that those indicators are like down to the pixel. So maybe this is where we need to work as well in language is like, can we get it down to the pixel in the same way so that we know if it's been used or changed? So is there a way of actually embedding it? So I like the idea of, could it just read for copyright and move on? In theory, probably could. Will it get there? Maybe that's where we have to sort of, again, go back to what are you training these models on? What are they drawing from? And sort of teaching it these new things. And you can, you could say, and don't include any information from sites that include the notion of copyright or this symbol in your prompts. You can do that if you want. It's not built into the, the technology itself. So the next question we have is from Joy. It's some writers are being fired by clients because AI content detectors are falsely evaluating their original writing as AI generated. How can we deal with that? Why do these AI content detectors do that? So who wants to deal with that one? I can speak a little bit unless you're feeling strongly about this, Catherine. We do this a lot for like academic writing and stuff other because AI contact, content detectors suck. Um, why do they do that? Um, the problem with AI content and, and trying to use a detector is we're all looking at predictability and similarity, and that's the criteria it's using. And in very, um, and good writers, things in very, you know, especially if you're using it in a technical writing sense, you're going to use the typical phrasing. These content generators also tend to pick up disproportionately English as a second language or English as additional language learners. Again, because they're drawing on these typical phrasing. So uh, I believe most um, companies have said, you know, that their AI detectors do not work. Um, that it's, it's not going to be successful. All it's going to do is a similarity index. And um, I think the challenge there is to say, do you want, you are, you're asking for something that's pretty standard. So unless you want me to use really unusual words, the content detectors will do that. And, and AI isn't a person, right? So if you ask it a question, did you write this? It can either say yes or no. Chances are it's going to say yes and move on because it won't have that same moral impetus or in my brain in going through there because it's not a human being. Um, so I think the challenge there is to talk to clients and, and give them a sense of like this, this, these tools actually have been, um, recently 
brought down in terms of their their accuracy. Um, but I'm I'm interested in Catherine too. What you might say from a writer's perspective if that was something you were asked about. Um, yeah, that's like that's really a tough one. I'm not I've not like heard of. Um, I guess I've not really heard too much about. AI detectors, like, yeah, misidentifying things. I think that, um, you know, coming back to like what uh, a writer's individual style is contributing to like a literary landscape, for example, um, and not not that I'm saying, you know, you have to be extra original in order to kind of bypass these AI uh, dupes or whatever. Um, but again, like, I think the solution to, um, the problem of, you know, AI stealing creativity or ap appropriating, reappropriating creativity um, is, is to not be using it in those ways so much as we're using it for technical writing or laying foundations for more, um, you know, formulaic types of writing. So uh, creatively, I still think that there's a bit of space there between um, what AI can touch um, in terms of, yeah, an artist's uh, pr production, the types of work that's being put out there um, creatively. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I can't speak to too much beyond that, I guess, uh, from a writer's standpoint at this point. All right, great. So that looks like um, the end of our session. Uh, I would really like to thank the, the you two panelists, Brenda and Catherine, for, for taking the time to have this discussion. It's a really important discussion. Uh, I'd like to thank the Writers Guild of Alberta for you know, sponsoring, putting on the session, and to you who attended, who sat down and were able to get some information and and hopefully get some ideas about what AI is and what you can do with it. Uh, just as a reminder before we wrap up, the donations to the Writers Guild of Alberta would really help keep programs like these going. Um, as the present, I understand what it's like to, to try and make these programs and help them keep writers engaged and keep them informed of what's going on. So, but uh, thank you everybody for, for joining in and we will see you at the next session. <laughs>